So good morning. How's everybody? That was mixed reviews right there, so hang in there. In James chapter 5, we are finding ourselves being challenged regarding prayer. You know, don't you, that there are those who are out there, not necessarily inside the church, but those of our day who consider prayer as a psychological crutch for people. In other words, it is that basic perception that says there's nothing really to prayer. And so for you to say that prayer changes things or I go to God in prayer is nothing other than a coping mechanism for you in life. Now, whether you believe that or not, there certainly are those people who do believe that. And so I wonder how we might answer them. Those people who would say that prayer is just an acknowledgement of one's weakness psychologically and otherwise, and therefore uh, we've developed this coping mechanism. And I guess my response to that would be, yes, prayer is in fact an acknowledgement of my weakness. And it may in fact have a certain psychological benefit for me. But I don't believe that that captures the essence of what prayer is. I guess in Texas, one of the heroes of baseball is a guy by the name of Nolan Ryan. And some of you may or may not know who he is, but Nolan Ryan is one of those Hall of Fame pitchers. He pitched for the Astros and for the Texas Rangers. And uh, he is kind of, in my opinion at least, the epitome of what a major league pitcher ought to be. He certainly achieved great success. But you know, there's an element of his life that I I think as it reflects reflects back on this need for a crutch uh, that I think is instructive for us. I was reading uh, an article uh, not too long ago and I came across in this article this, this discussion that occurred with Nolan Ryan's wife. And she said that uh, this hero of the baseball world, the guy who reached the pinnacle of what it means to be a pitcher, and just so you know, my opinion, a pitcher uh, in a major league baseball team is probably the single most uh, exposed level of sports that you get. Maybe golfers are are an equal uh, task that, except that the major league pitcher, everything rises and falls on what he does. And here's this guy who I picture as being the, the best picture of this guy who's got the mental part of the game down and the physical part of the game down. And yet his wife said that one of the, the rituals that he went through is that at every game, he would step out before the first pitch was thrown to the top step of the dugout and scan the crowd for her. And when he would see his wife in the crowd, he would tip his hat to her and then disappear back into the dugout, he was ready to go then. Now, whatever else you want to call that, some would call it romantic, some would call it cheesy, some would call it weak. Whatever else it was in that world of professional sports where superstitions are big, the thing that he repeated time after time after time may have well been a psychological crutch. 
Crutches are not bad. I've used them in the past. Canes are not bad. I've used them recently. When you need help, you get help, right? Well, unless you're a male. So, so here's James' question to us as we now are in the home stretch of this letter that he's written on how to live out your faith. James' question to us is this one that says, does your faith work in your prayer life? Maybe I'll ask it a different way. If somehow prayer was taken out of your everyday life, would you feel like your heart had been removed from your chest? Or would it be just one of those other pieces of your life that kind of goes away and you have to kind of allow for it? James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, we read these challenging words. And before I even get to it, I want to come back and remind you that last week I called for a prayer revolution because I believe that the level of prayer that gets pushed out into the general public, and that includes us in American life today, that level of prayer is a cheap substitute from the mouth of hell. Now, that, that might be a challenging statement for you, but by the time we get to this end of this message and what I think James is teaching us today, I hope to establish for us that just being, just operating at that level that says, okay, I have this checklist and I've got prayer is one of my religious checkboxes every day I have to do. And so I sit down and, you know, some of us are sophisticated enough that we even develop a prayer list and we pray and we add things to it and, uh, and we check them off as we pray through it and then we're done. If that's the level of prayer that we are experiencing, it is a cheap substitute from Satan himself. Prayer is so much more than that. So James gives us these words and he, he's just messy. I mean, what he does here, just I, I wish he'd written five more chapters of this little letter to help explain some of the stuff that he drops on us here. I won't go back through all of that stuff, but here's what he says. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The power, or excuse me, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then he gives the example of that statement in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so James, with these words, drives us back to the heart of what prayer is supposed to be. And it's messy to be sure, and we're going to take several weeks as we try to unpack the stuff that he says here, what the implications of it are. But what we've seen already in this, if we look closely, is a, an opportunity for us to see beyond current levels of functioning in Christian life. So I want to give three building blocks today. They will come in the form of questions, but these are building blocks for our revolution, 
I hope that it's revolutionary in your own life, but if it's going to be that, then you have to start with a proper foundation, and we find that foundation growing out of verse 13. So we'll be focused in on verse 13 for the rest of the day, although I'm going to take you to another place or two before it's all said and done. So here's the first building block. If we're going to have a revolutionary kind of prayer life, the first thing that we need to answer is when should you pray? Yesterday, Teresa and I, uh, you know, we've been pretty loaded up in our schedule since, really since Christmas. And yesterday was the first Saturday that we had a chance to go to Huntsville to see my folks since mid-January. And uh, so on the way over there, we were in pretty deep discussion about some issues in our bigger family life. We're fine, okay? The issues were not me and her yet. Um, No, (laughs) totally joking, totally joking. We're good, right? Say good. We're good for everybody. Okay, we're good. All right. Uh, There is no deacons meeting today, just so you guys know. Um, But in our extended family, uh, both sides, we have major, major issues that are happening. Uh, Some of them are of the heartbreaking variety. And so on the way over there yesterday, um, you know, that's about an hour and 45 minutes um, of us being able to just sit and talk, the two of us. So we did that. And... Some of what we're dealing with uh, relative to the situation as it is, is, um, well, it pushes us to, to very uncomfortable places. And by nature, I'm a guy that likes to examine and scheme, if you will, and figure out how we're going to fix this. And so we were talking through, that was a big part of our conversation, uh, understanding what we were seeing there and the personalities that were involved and some of the long-term issues that were involved. And, and it was an hour and 45 minutes worth of intense, let's examine and plan. But it wasn't until we got in the car to come home last night, and it was... 8.30, roughly 8.30 as we're making our way across. Actually, we dropped down the Conroe. We're coming across 105 and uh, through that way. And it was dark by that time. And she was in the midst of a discussion text-wise with somebody else. And so what I had was the opportunity to be quiet. And for the first time from noon until 8.30, that was actually before noon, 10 o'clock until 8.30, for the first time I thought, Maybe I should see what God has to say about this. I know that some of you are much more spiritual than I am, and you would have gone to him in prayer much quicker than I did. I'm just trying to let you see. I, I'm, I'm just normal. I, I'm not up here talking like I got all the answers on how to do this. See, here's my, my contention, I think. It's I, I think that we live life at warp speed these days. Is that true in your life? It's like we have figured out how to do things more quickly, which then means we feel like we have to pack more into the time that we have. 
And so if we're not careful, we find ourselves dealing with major issues in our life and coming to God with those things is an afterthought. And it takes something in us, a, a change in the schedule, some kind of magnitude of, of, of an earthquake, if you will, that is so severe that it forces us to stop and go, oh, wait a minute, what does God have to say about this? But you see, even that kind of prayer is better, I don't know if I should say it that way, at least it's moving in the right direction, away from that religious checkbox kind of thing that says, okay, I have my prayer list, I'll pray for these things, God, you know, uh, my next door neighbors, I just do something with that yapping dog that they have. But we get to those times, and I think God sometimes allows us to get to those times that are so far beyond us that we don't know what else to do other than take them to God. But even if that's the sum total of your prayer life, I have to tell you, there's still a better option out there. It's not that either one of those are wrong in and of themselves, but they're not best. So this first building block, when should we pray I think James has a very good and yet a very challenging answer for us. Look again at verse 13. We'll be in verse 13 from this point forward today. And here's what we get. Is anyone among you suffering? And then he asks another question. Is anyone cheerful? And so what he's doing now is he's using a rhetorical device, this this writing mechanism that he inserts in here that intentionally moves us to pause. He uses both ends of the spectrum, and by using both ends, suffering or cheerful, by using both ends of the spectrum, he includes everything that's in between those. Suffering is not specifically tied to health problems. I said this last week about this whole passage. This is not a teaching primarily about healing. This is a primary teaching about prayer. He just uses healing as one of those places inside of it. And so one of the reasons I can say that is because of verse 13. It's the umbrella under which the rest of it falls. And he uses these two extremes. And in using those extremes, if you're suffering, if you're just having a life full of bad experience. Anybody know anybody having that experience in life? Is it fair to say that all of us have elements in our lives, even today sitting here, that we would go, that's horrible. If I could lay out the stuff that Teresa and I were talking about on the way over there, you would be depressed. How do do we get through those times? James says, pray. He goes to the other end of the spectrum and he says, if you're cheerful. This is the word that means to take heart. As a matter of fact, those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts, the apostle Paul And that shipwreck episode in the latter part of the book of Acts, chapter 27 to be exact, one of the things that Paul says to those sailors on that ship and the other prisoners that are with him as they're about to be dashed up against the rocks, Paul says, take heart. What are you, an idiot? We're going to die out here. And Paul knows something. And so he says, take heart. It's the exact same word as James uses here. So if you're cheerful, if you woke up this morning and all of the world smelled like a rose, 
First of all, I say you need to get a clue. No, I don't really say that because the reality is there are good things in life. Cheerful or suffering, either end of the spectrum, and by using this device, James pulls everything in between. So in other words, what James is teaching is that we should pray in all circumstances. But you see how that totally destroys that checkbox religious approach to prayer. I get up in the morning, I have my quiet time. I like to use the air quotes because we've thrown quiet time around so much that it's anything but quiet most of the time. James is teaching that we should pray in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul would say it a different way in another letter. He says, pray without ceasing. But you see, that's, that, that sets us up for a problem. It sets us up for a problem. And it also provides the first building block for us in a prayer revolution. When should we pray? Always. But you see, that challenges how we approach prayer. I rather suspect that if you have a job and you're working for someone and your boss comes in, whether you're out on a job or sitting at a desk somewhere, And your boss comes in and says, hey, you need to get this done now. And you say to your boss, hold on, I'm praying. If you try that tomorrow, do not come tell me that you got fired because of me. Okay? Your boss is not going to go for that, right? So does your boss trump scripture then? You see, that now we're up against it because the, the model that we have chosen for ourselves about what prayer needs to look like doesn't work in this kind of an application. But you see, that's working it backwards. Our model can't be taken and pushed on Scripture and try to make Scripture say something that fits our model. Our model has to grow out of Scripture, right? Whoa. Okay, let me just tell you. Right. Our model has to grow out of Scripture, not take a model that we like and force it onto Scripture. That's heresy. So either James knows something or we, we need some help. So how do you pray all the time? That's when we're supposed to pray. So here's now, that sets us up for the second building block. And that's with this question, then how should we pray? And James gives us some answers with that here because in verse 13, one more time, he says, is any among you suffering? We've already talked about that. Is anyone cheerful? We've already talked about that. But he says in between those, let him pray. And with that statement, James gives us the general, actually the most general term in all of the New Testament for what prayer is essentially is a word that means this is speaking with God. I'm going to adjust that just a moment because that's my words anyway coming off of what we think that means, let him pray. But let me go to the other side first. And I think, now Brian didn't pay me to say this, but Brian's going to like what I'm about to say. I say that so that Kristen can wake him up before we, just kidding. 
What does he say in verse 13 on the back end of it? Is anyone cheerful, let him do what? Sing praise. The word sing praise there is the same one that we go backwards, the word that we use for the Psalms. And so we pull that idea over. The Psalms of the Old Testament is a book of songs for Israel's worship. So what James is saying here, if we drill it down to get the full thrust of what he's saying is this word that he uses here could very easily be translated and very correctly be translated. If he's cheerful, let him make music. I knew it. See, I knew he'd like that. And see what we get with this. This is under the umbrella of prayer. James is teaching us about prayer. And so what bubbles to the surface from this now is that, remember the, the, the both sides of it, if you're depressed, if you're down, if you're suffering, pray. But the mirror statement on the other end of the spectrum is, if you're cheerful, then make music. It is a prayerful response that we call worship. Here's some of the fallacy of the way we think. Our model is messed up. When we say that was a great worship service today, usually what we mean is the music was awesome. Somehow we've divided up this hour into the worship segment and the preaching segment. Now, I get it. I listened to these sermons back, and I know how hard it is to sit there and listen to me. But to take what James is saying here, prayer, that natural response that we have in the worst of times, in the best of times, it comes out as this heartfelt conversation with God. But on the other side, worship is prayer. So when you go home and you think to yourself, that, that music guy, he, didn't get, he didn't do it for me today. Let me tell you something, that's more of an indictment on you than it is on him. If you didn't worship in church today or last week or next week, then the problem is not with the musicians. It's a worship problem. It's a prayer problem. But you see, we've reduced it down to whether we liked the music itself, whether we liked the tune and the, and the style of it or not, we have churches that are fractured in their worship because they've reduced the Christian worship experience to preferences. But when it grows out of your prayer life, it doesn't matter who's singing or playing or even if anybody is singing or praying. That's James's point here. So we get both ends of the spectrum. If you're Suffering, if you're cheerful, if you're conversing with God, spoken word, or conversing with God, sung word. So how should we pray? The implication for us is this. Here's the synopsis, maybe is a better way for me to say it. Prayer is a natural outflow of the heart condition. You see how that's different than just having a prayer list that you work through? Now, again, I know that it sounds like I'm hacking on that approach. 
And I really don't intend to hack on it as much as I'd like to say, okay, take that, but let's blend it into the bigger picture of what prayer is. I like the way Craig Blomberg said it, straight to the point. If anyone is suffering or if anyone's happy, he should pray. But you see, I think that messes us up again. I think we find ourselves once again being pushed to uncomfortable places by what James is telling us. Because not only are we living life at warp speed and consequently it's hard for us to to move this out of a, a segment of our life to be an everyday, every moment pieces of our life. We also now have to work against what we've learned. The reality is that we all learn, at least one way that we learn, is by mimicking other people. Great YouTube video if you want to watch it. Not now, not now, but um, cell phones are coming out. And we're, all right, it's a lady who I get, if I remember right, she's trying to do a yoga move. Now, you just need to know, okay? I ain't ever doing a yoga move, okay? You're going you're gonna to know why in just a second, but I, I don't even eat yogurt, okay? Anything close to yoga, I'm not doing. I'm not even going to attempt it, all right? Now, I'll eat a bag of popcorn while you're trying to do it. If you want, that's cool. But in this video, this lady is trying to, here's why I don't do yoga, one of the reasons. She's trying to take one of her legs and wrap it around and uh, over her head to her neck. Why would anybody want to do that? All right? But the funny part of it is, just so you know, I don't go looking at ladies doing yoga. That's not the point of this. What drew me to it was the dog. Because while she's on the floor, if you're going to try that, be on the floor. Don't be standing up. And while she's trying to do that, here's her dog laying on the floor next to her. And the dog watches her trying to get her leg over around her neck. And the dog just places his leg behind his neck. And she keeps trying and the dog keeps looking at her and he throws it up there again. Okay. Now we're the dog in that when it comes to prayer. Hate to tell you that. But the tendency for us is to see what somebody else is doing and then we adopt it. Or at least the things we like. And it happens in prayer all the time. So somebody gets up and they pray this prayer and they say something in the midst of it that we like. So we adopt it. One of the things that we did yesterday is after we finished at my parents' house, uh, Teresa's looking for some specific stuff for our front porch. So we've searched half of East Texas now looking for it. And uh, so we thought we would drop down into the woodlands since we were so close. We went through Conroe and dropped down into the woodlands to look for this particular thing she's looking for. Uh, and we, our kids, Lauren and John, that's our daughter and son-in-law, and then the king of the place, Declan, who's our nine-month-old grandson, uh, they found out that we were in that area, and so they thought it would be a great idea if we bought them supper. <laughs> so, so we did. But Declan shows up, and like I said, he's the king of the whole thing. And he comes up, and he's in his little seat, and they've got a stroller that it sits in, and they bring him into the restaurant, and, and they push him over there close to where I was. And now, I, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I know when I have to sit by the baby, that means I'm going to have to feed him instead of feed me. So I switched with Teresa. And uh, 
But in the process of that, Declan started waking up and I started doing this thing that I've been doing with him now the last couple of times we've seen him, which is uh, clicking my tongue like that. Okay? Now, you may not think that's cool, but Declan thinks that's awesome. And so I start doing that with my grandson and he's looking at me and I see, I see it starting to register now. He's, he's starting to try to form his lips so that he can make that, and his tongue's moving this way in his mouth. Now, that's a problem because now he's got a tooth, and so now he's got to work around a tooth while he's trying to figure this out. My point in that is the way he is with me, we are with each other when it comes to prayer, and that is we begin to mimic the things that we hear other people say. And the patterns that we learn in life, and especially in this particular case, have a way of leading us to bad places. This week, I, 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 you know, y'all are awesome. I gotta tell you, love it, love being here on whole nine yards. So this week, uh, social media playing out and the prayer series that we're having, uh, somebody posted and tagged me on Facebook, uh, a meme and uh, I thought I should share it with you, all right? So look at the meme, and don't be offended. Just read it for what it is, okay? So this one person says, oh, by the way, start at the bottom. If we talk to people the way we talk to God. Emily, my wife, or Emily, wife, could you just, just pick up some milk, Emily, wife, while you're at the store? Just go ahead, Emily, wife, and just, just go to the milk section, Emily, just grab some milk, Emily, and just, just place it right on your cart, wife. Emily, wife, just thank you, Emily, wife. Now, here's what that captures. The reason I wanted to share it with you is I want you to get the full depth of what I'm talking about. Our prayer approach is so mechanical sometimes that we start just spouting stuff and we don't even think about what we're saying. And the truth of this bumps right up against what Jesus said in Matthew 6 where he said, uh, and I'll put it in my own words, Jesus said something to this effect. When the, the, it's those, the people who don't get it, who just keep with the vain repetition, the empty repeating of phrases in prayer. Chris and I in Jerusalem had the opportunity to go to the Wailing Wall. Now, whether you know it or not, that's a segregated area. And men can, only men can go to the most holy part of that. And women have to go to another part. But you just need to know my wife. I looked up and she's walking down almost to the wall in the men's section. And I'm thinking to myself, we're going to have an international incident. They're going to say something to her and she is going to go off on some dude. And so I'm thinking about running up there. I think that can't be a good idea. And about the time I do that, a guy walked out and got you, right? And said, uh, you're out of here, okay? I say that because when I got up to the wall, you know what I heard? I heard this chanting of the same over and over and over. And I thought to myself, these are Jews at their most holy place. And they're doing what Baptists do in church every week. Now, I want you to hear my heart now, okay? I really want you to get my heart on this. I know 
that when I start preaching about this kind of stuff and challenging the way we do it, that many people in church start getting really self-conscious about their prayer lives. I understand that. My intent is not to make you self-conscious. My intent is not to cast any kind of guilt or shame or anything like that attached to this. It is the wise guy who told me once, the best way to pray is to just pray what your heart feels. You know what? That's smart. You cannot go wrong if that's the way you're praying. So I don't want you to feel like this is one of those attack kind of things as much as it is a teaching point for us. It is not for me about the repetition per se. It's about the presumptuous approach that that reveals to us when we go to God. If I'm halfway mentally engaged in that conversation with God, then that's disrespectful. If my kids ever did that with me and they came to me and they started talking to me like that, I'd, well... I'd pop them somehow. You're not going to treat me like that. How, how do you think God feels when we come to him in this religious kind of a way and all we have to throw out there is this half-minded approach that just kind of treats him like he's a nobody? You think God likes that from us? That's not what James is promoting here at all. And so he's setting us up for problems, James is. Third building block, because this one gets to help us understand the other two. If we, if we understand when we're supposed to pray is all the time, and we, and we understand that the, the way we pray is important, maybe we should talk about what prayer is. How do you define prayer? Now, as usual, I like my definition best. I'm just that kind of a guy. Here's my definition for what prayer is. It is an ongoing discussion with God. It's simple. It has two primary words in there. The first one is discussion. How does a discussion work? I was reminded last night, sitting across the table from my daughter, I was reminded of how glad I am that we're empty nesters. I flash back at somewhere in that conversation. I love Lauren to death. You just have to know that. Okay, we got a kind of a father-daughter thing going there, and I love her to death. But, you know, when she was a teenager, there, we had many discussions when if she would have said anything, it would have been wrong for her to do. You, parents, you know what I'm mean? Kids, you know those discussions you have with your parents where you don't get to say anything? Right? That, that is not a discussion. That's a filibuster. And sometimes, so I just pulled my wife right back to the dinner table last night. And sometimes when we come to God, we treat this discussion like it's a filibuster and we're the one doing all the talking. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Don't you think God already knows what you're feeling and thinking? It's not like you got to inform him like he's been asleep or he's been playing golf or something and missed what's going on in your life. He knows better than you do. So what James is saying here, this ongoing conversation with God, our discussion, it is a true discussion. It is back and forth, a give and take. It is a true relationship. But it's ongoing in nature. It, it's, it doesn't occur between 7 and 7.15 in the morning. It might be part of that time, but it's all the time. 
James says. So in case you don't like my definition, let me give you one of an expert. Teresa of Avila says this. For prayer is nothing else than being on terms of friendship with God. I have that statement hanging on a plaque in my office at the house because it's a good thing for me to remember that before I leave to come to the office here. Just like it's a good thing for you to remember that before you leave the house every day and go into a world living at warp speed that leaves no time for God. Friendships don't thrive when they're ignored. So let me give you a last piece of clarification and we'll close. I'm struck with an example that comes from a lady named Sue Kidd. She was on a prayer retreat and I I had a spiritual retreat like she talks about. In 2008, I went to Winter Park, Colorado and during the summertime and there's a YMCA of the Rockies there. And I was part of a conference that was a worldwide conference that it was only open to the first 200 people to sign up. So we had people from all over the world there. Um, but the intent was not necessarily to rub shoulders with people from all over the world. It was intended to be an emphasis on prayer and especially on silence. It was perhaps the most therapeutic week I spent of my whole life as a pastor. And during the time that we were there, I had the opportunity on more than one occasion to go out just by myself into the countryside there uh, and just converse with God. So Sue Kidd says on a retreat like that, that she had been through the morning session with their whole group and then they were instructed to go out and just spend the next eight hours together by themselves. Together, out by themselves, all of them doing it. And so she said she went out and she sat down under a tree with the intent of going and just kind of listening to what God had to say. And as she sat there, as soon as she sat down, she said, all of these thoughts started racing through her head, all the things she needed to do, all the letters she needed to write and things that she just hadn't made time to do. And so she sat there for maybe 10, 15 minutes and it was just this, everything she heard, she said, my mind was just racing with stuff that I needed to handle. And she kept telling herself, I'm supposed to be here to wait on God. I'm supposed to be here and just do nothing. And so... Finally, she just got up and she left to go back to her room to take care of those things. And as she left, she looked over and there was a guy sitting under a tree not too far away. And he was sitting perfectly still. He had a, uh, a cap on and he had pulled it down over his ears. And she said she watched him. He didn't move. And she admired what she was seeing in him. As her own mind was still racing, she went back to her room. She took care of that stuff. But that evening, she had a chance. She saw the guy again. And she went over to him and she said... Um, I'm intrigued with what I saw. How, how are you able to sit there and do nothing? She said, I can't just sit and do nothing. The guy looked at her, actually reached out and he put his hand on her shoulder. And he said, oh, but you've missed it. He said, when you go to prayer, you don't do nothing. You're waiting on God. And he said, it's in the waiting on God in the silence that your soul 
grows up. That's, that's profound for us. Because that relationship that we have, the conversation that we have, is such that we don't, we don't need to just sit and do nothing. We go in silence and we carve out time from our day so that we can move into the presence of God and our soul grows up when we do that. It's less about what I have to say to God and all about what God has to say to me. But you'll find in this ongoing conversation with him that when you listen to what he has to say, he will bring to the surface the things that you wanted to pray about in the first place. Because he knows you. And he cares about you. And his design is not that any of us should go through life alone. See, when we reduce prayer to a religious checkbox, we miss the occasion to fellowship with God Almighty. What a cheap substitute that is. And Satan laughs his way through life watching God's people feel good about a religious exercise that leaves them empty. So how is it with you? Bow your heads, if you will. Invitation time today is to invite you to to just revolt from modern prayer and step into what God has in mind for us, this positioning tool in our relationship with him. Maybe for you that needs to be a start into a relationship with him at all. If you don't know God, if you don't know Christ as your savior, that's where you start. I'd love to talk to you about how to have that kind of relationship with him today. Me, Aaron, Stephanie, they're both at the back already. I'll go to the back in the moment for the, for the invitation time. You can come back there where we are and we'll pray with you, talk with you, help try to at least begin that conversation so you could understand what a relationship with him looks like. And many of us in here already know that relationship. But somehow we stepped away from the vibrancy of that into just a religious system. So maybe for you, the commitment today needs to be, you know what? I'm going to start carving out time. Five minutes before I go to work. Fifteen minutes. Maybe 15 minutes before I go to work. Fifteen minutes of my lunch hour. Fifteen minutes as I'm going home. Maybe it's turn off the radio in your truck while you're on the way to work and just let God speak to you there. Let's have a revolution that finds us at the foot of the throne of God, listening to his voice. Father, use this time for your glory as our prayer in Jesus' name.